This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the morning run continues. It's now uh, 35 minutes past nine and it's time for the S&M show. So we're where we rant and about what's working and what's not in stocks and markets. I'm Shorad Kutin with me, Julian Ng, and our guest, Norishab Hussein from EPF. Pleasure as always. Always. Um, <laughs> so what is, the, what is the big issue that we're going to be taking up today, Julian? Well, uh, if you've not been living under a rock over the past <laughs> few weeks, uh, we're going to talk about exchange rates today and uh, comparing um, na- different national exchange rate regimes and uh, at the end of it try to come so- to some sort of a conclusion about what it means for the ringgit and uh, I just want to start off with um, the fact that Malaysia is kind of an open economy um, do we have to accept waves of possibly destabilizing hot money flows because that's what we- that part of an yeah. open economy that we don't like right? yeah I think that's something that a lot of people don't like. Uh, (laughs) But I I think that's going to be a larger and larger feature of the global financial markets going forward because, you know, we talked about demographics a a few weeks ago. Um, And one of the the things coming out of that is is that we're having a lot of savings flowing around looking for investments and looking for yield. Um, And, you know, we either accept it or we're going to have to face the consequences of, of, of these flows. Uh, managing it is very, very difficult, and I don't envy what Banagara has to has to do. Uh, it's not something that can be solved on a local level. It really needs a multinational, multilateral approach. Okay, uh, so different countries coming together and deciding yeah. what to do about yeah. these kinds of destabilizing flows. Exactly, uh, because we, you know we we've had individual countries trying to do something. Um, obviously, some countries still retain uh, quite a few capital controls, uh, but the flip side of that, of course, is that you restrict investment in your own economy. Um, and again, that's something that we, we would prefer to have. And Malaysia historically has always been an open economy, way back till even during colonial times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's part of our DNA. It's part of what's um, allowed us to grow so much better than most of the developed world. Yeah, so, so during that time in the 40s and 50s, we were intentionally open because the colonial masters wanted to take out our rubber and, and tin and, right. and all those things, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, looking at just uh, the characteristics of the different economies and countries around the region, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Singapore does it a certain way, yep. Indonesia does it a certain way. And, you know, when we contrast the, the polarity of what's happening, yep. Malaysia, you know, 250 in the 70s to the U.S. dollar, you know, uh, 350 in the 90s, uh, 450 today, um, the question of what is next. But really, let's look at Singapore, which is yeah. a country with uh, acceptedly uh, very, very strong currency, right. right? What's happening there and how yeah, does it every, Everybody's favorite um, comparison. Um, Singapore's uh, exchange rate regime is quite unique. They actually use it for monetary policy purposes. So like Malaysia pegs uh, interest rates, the United States pegs interest rates, most of the developed world pegs interest rates. Singapore pegs the exchange rate, but with a very unique feature. Uh, They target uh, a basket of currencies. They call it the uh, nominal effective exchange rate. It's a trade-weighted basket of of currencies. They don't actually um, publish what's in that basket, um, but they, they... actually target it in a unique way. Uh, they specifically target an appreciation of the NEER rather mm-hmm. than a level. So they're not looking at price, uh, sorry, exchange rate stability. They're actually uh, promoting a stronger currency. Now, in practice, 
what that means actually is that they have been holding the ring, the Sing dollar back, uh, in effect, um, from appreciating too fast. Uh, so they've been accumulating reserves for a long while. Um, but recently, over the last couple of years, what that has meant is that because of uh, uh, declining growth, because of m- very low inflation that we've seen, you know, everybody's, you know, uh, grappling with the same problem, uh, they're stuck as well. Uh, they are actually having to contemplate the exchange rate equivalent of a negative interest rate, which is a, either a negative slope, uh, which means that they have to actually promote a depreciation. That, of that, D, word, that, D, that D word. That D word is very unpopular. Um, and either that or uh, a devaluation, which is basically you uh, bring your target down. Uh, a certain level, and they, they have a few other options. That, like for instance, uh, expanding the band. You know, f- watching uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is actually quite interesting because there's all kinds of permutations that they can do. Whereas in Malaysia, all we see is OPR goes up 25 BP, low down 25 <laughs> BP. So it's fairly straightforward. Uh, it's a lot harder to understand how Singapore does it. Uh, the flip side of Singapore's approach is that essentially uh, they cannot control domestic interest rates, and um, because it's a trade-weighted index uh, that they're actually targeting, uh, effectively, interest rates in Singapore are determined by uh, the Federal Reserve, it's determined by the PBOC, it's determined by the, uh, um, the ECB, it's also determined by Banagara. Does that mean giving up domestic monetary policy? I mean, Essentially. I, I, are you at the mercies of other regimes? Yeah, the reason why they do this and, and the reason why it works for Singapore is that they actually have to import everything they consume. Right. right, from water to sand to food to vegetables, everything. So it makes sense to have a strong exchange rate so that the imports well, are cheaper. It's not so much a strong exchange rate, but an appreciating exchange rate. Because if you have inflation that's imported from overseas, if you, for instance, 2%, and you want price stability, that means you appreciate the currency by 2%, you basically get zero domestic inflation. Uh, so that's, that's the basic idea behind it. Uh, the problem uh, for everybody else is that if one country is doing it, another can't. Because if I target your currency and you target mine, we'll both kill each other trying to <laughs> outdo uh, in terms of appreciation. Yeah, yeah, so why are there no speculative attacks against the Sing dollar? Who says there is? Oh, there, there is? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, ab- Explain that because I want to go to Singapore and the exchange rate right now is three to one uh, or more than three to one. Well, I'm, I'm listening with morbid fascination to this yeah. conversation because, um, first of all, the, the, the level of complexity. I, I think for maybe a lot of uh, people who yeah. are not, you know, kind of technically inclined, the, the question is that they always imagine that the currency strength is yeah. a reflection of something real, that the economy yeah. is strong, and yeah. that what's happened to the ringgit is a reflection of problems that we have at home yeah. with our economy, with governance, whatever. Yeah. And is, that, is that completely mis, um, a misrepresentation of the situation? Our currency is not about that. Yeah, I, I would I would say so because the thing is you, you go back to what a, uh, an exchange rate actually is. I'm not talking about currency, but an exchange rate between two currencies. Uh, so you're actually talking about two different countries. You're talking about um, uh, the, the movement in exchange rate could be a reflection of one country or it could be a reflection of the other or it could be a reflection of both. So the number actually doesn't mean anything. Um, so for example, you can explain 95% of the movements of the ringgit via the U.S. dollar alone. Uh, and what we've seen over the past two years is that the, the dollar has appreciated 20% against virtually everybody else. So really a lot of the drop in the ringgit is 
essentially uh, because the dollar has been in a, a secular bull run mm-hmm. uh, with changes in Fed policy. Okay, Bef- before we talk in more detail about uh, what to do with the ringgit, uh, can you take us through Indonesia a little bit because uh, their currency has been depreciating yeah. and um, that seems to be a good thing for the country, uh, which is counterintuitive. <laughs> no, I, I, well, th- it goes back to another another particular exchange rate theory, and that's called interest rate parity. Um, so what happens is that um, you the difference between the exchange rates would be driven by both changes in interest rates, uh, the differences in interest rates, as well as differences in inflation. And a lot of the depreciation of the rupiah has been because they have had um, a secularly higher rate of inflation than everybody else has. Uh, earlier in the in the century, their inflation rate was running at seven or eight percent. Um, it's come down a great deal, and I think I think the the um, uh, Bank Indonesia has done a fantastic job in terms of bringing inflation down. But a lot of the depreciation of the, the rupiah essentially goes back to the fact that right now they've they've got inflation rate running above four, uh, whereas you know for example in Malaysia it's around two percent. So you're seeing that the rate of depreciation of the rupiah itself has actually dropped quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll be back with more uh, on the uh, SNM show right after this, uh, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, we're back with the SNM show. I'm Shroud Kutin, Julian Ng, and our guest, Nohisham Hussein, head of the Economics and Capital Markets Department at the EPF, the much-loved EPF, I must <laughs> Thank say. You. Okay, so we're keeping our money in EPF. It's accumulating over years, and suddenly it doesn't buy as much as it did uh, last year, right, like twenty percent depreciation in the in the ringgit over the yeah. last couple, uh, you know yeah. uh, recent period. Um, should that worry Mal- Malaysians? It was a very quick question. I mean, I yeah. just because you, you it's say, a well, relevant you, question. Yeah, we put a lot of cash yeah. in, yeah. you know. Yeah, and then, no, well, it's not just your cash. I mean, it's your income on an everyday basis. It's uh, what you use to buy, you know, uh, electrical goods or you know, imported food and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it is something that that should concern Malaysians. Uh, but I, I really want to emphasize that. Um, Movements in the U.S. dollar alone does not define import prices. Um, like I said, it's, it's a dollar bull run, but uh, one of the responses that we've actually seen is that export prices out of the U.S. in the U.S. dollar terms uh, for most goods have actually dropped as well. So the, 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 you know, the, the headline number that you actually see in terms of a 20% drop doesn't actually define uh, a drop in your uh, purchasing power. Per se, the other point that I, I really want to make is that on, and I think Shard was asking about this j- just now, was on a nominal effective exchange rate basis. In other words, uh, relative to all the other currencies that we actually trade with, the ringgit actually hasn't dropped that much um, over the past three weeks or so since the Trump election. By my calculations, we've seen a roughly one point eight percent drop uh, across all currencies. Um, uh, for the ringgit. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? How is it that uh, we've seen the ringgit fall so sharply yeah. and then from a nominal viewpoint, it hasn't dropped that much? Uh, essentially because everybody else has dropped as well. Uh, so uh, rupiah has dropped, maybe not as much. I think uh, the won has dropped, the yen has dropped a lot. I think, I think the uh, yen has dropped something like 3% over the past two weeks. Um, virtually every country that we trade with, with the exception of the pound, uh, has seen a drop. And the pound is because, you know, it had that sharp drop after Brexit. 
So right now, um, I think what you're alluding to is the fact that uh, this is a trade-weighted uh, basis yep. and kind of valuation of the yep. currency. But um, if we look at a very long-term trajectory, I mean, yep. 250, again, 250 to 350 to 450, yep. what does the next decade hold? Um, people are very worried about where the ringgit is today. And we also see Bank Nagara uh, coming out with statements about the transparency of traders, right? Uh, <laughs> do we... How do we, ordinary Malaysians, how do we plan for the future? And do we read between the lines of what Bank Nagara is saying? Oh, that's a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, I I think looking at the underlying situation, um, the essential characteristic of of why the ringgit has been dropping over the last few decades is because we are a major commodity player. Uh, We produce oil, we produce gas, we produce palm oil, we produce rubber. Um, and empirically, uh, the, some studies have shown that the prices of commodities have tended to drop uh, over time relative to manufactured goods. Uh, and from an exchange rate perspective, what that means is that if you're a commodity player, your exchange rate will drop over time relative to a country that does not produce commodity goods. For example, Korea. Korea doesn't have any natural resources. Singapore, same thing. Uh, so we would tend to see a depreciation of the ringgit relative to them. Now, the important thing for us is that to maintain uh, growth and, and, and purchasing power, what we need to see is income growth within the country actually exceeding uh, income growth within their countries. Um, the other way that we can do it is to actually diversify away from commodities. Um, in the meantime, as long as we are exposed to um, uh, commod- global commodity prices, because they move very fast, uh, I, I think the CPO that I was mentioning to Julian just now, the standard deviation of CPO prices on an annual basis is 25%. That means mm-hmm. you can see a 25% uh, move within prices on, in any given year. That's both up and down. Yeah. Um, so under those kind of circumstances uh, – as long as we're a major commodity player, we need a very flexible exchange rate. And we will see volatility in exchange rate uh, because of that. Mm-hmm. But um, judging by what uh, Muhammad Ismail, is, uh, Ibrahim is saying, yep. uh, the new Bank Nagara yep. governor, uh, he seems to be suggesting that uh, the ringgit woes today um, are really the fault of these very opaque traders. Mm-hmm. and. I'm just wondering whether putting my conspiratorial hat on, whether, you know, we are moving... Do you ever take it off, Julian? (laughs) Whether we're moving towards a a kind of new monetary order um, in the extent of, you know, what we saw in Bretton Woods, right? At the time, the new monetary order came about. And with these uh, like gaping inequality that exists in the world today, whether we need one of that. And, and that's a tough mountain to move, right? That it is, it is. And it's not necessarily the best move either. I mean, we see the problems of the euro where there's uh, different circumstances of different countries calls for different exchange rate uh, arrangements, but they're stuck with the euro. Uh, we saw that with Bretton Woods where you had different tra- trajectories between countries and you had the UK being hit by speculative attacks about three or four times within that period. Uh, Italy, France, they all had uh, very painful devaluations. So that system itself is not necessarily stable. Uh, And it it really depends on the anchor. And nobody's really willing to take on that responsibility being the anchor anymore. Uh, So do we need a a new world? Maybe we do. I I don't know. Uh, The problem is that it really requires a multilateral solution rather than an individual country solution. Because a lot of this trading has gone offshore. Um, and it's traded around the world, even when the ringgit is not internationalized. Because of the NDF market, they don't need ringgit to actually trade 
the ringgit exchange rate. Uh, so there are factors outside of the country that impact our exchange rate that we can't control. Uh, yeah. yeah, so as we wait for our knight in shining armor, whether it's a new kind of uh, global financial uh, <laughs> yeah, it's architecture. It's probably be Donald Trump. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, okay. Well, he's certainly white. I don't know about a knight. Um, what about the ordinary Malaysian who's kind of concerned? I mean, pe- perhaps people are, are not literate enough to understand yeah. what, what it means when we look at this kind of uh, exchange rates. I mean, people yeah. might be checking XE.com and, and having yeah. little heart attacks. I mean, yeah. how exactly do we kind of <laughs> understand this better? And what can we do to protect uh, you know, our savings and our, our assets? I think one way, I mean, what EPF has done is we actually diversified overseas. So in in, this, in that sense, um, uh, the people's savings actually have benefited partly from, well, actually have this mitigated by our foreign assets. Um, and I think that's something that uh, a lot of Malaysians That will continue, started, right? Hopefully. That will continue, yes. Yeah. Um, the other aspect of it is I think one thing that's interesting over the last couple of years is that a lot of small companies, especially those involved in, in the trade, uh, have started exploring hedging strategies. So we're learning mm-hmm. to manage the situation. And um, I think thirdly, what we can do is basically diversify even more away from oil and gas and even more away from CPO and rubber and the rest of the natural commodities. We need to go up the value chain. Yeah. Would you agree that uh, on a personal level, we have to err on the side of just diversifying our investments outwards, outside of Malaysia? That would be a good idea regardless yeah. of the situation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. With or without yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, I just want a word or two from you about uh, reserves, right? Because we've seen the, and, and this being a markets kind of show, um, we've seen the ringgit um, mm. you know, having slashed one third of the reserves. Uh, but uh, where... Do we have enough reserves? That's one question. Yep. The other question is China. They have tr- $3 trillion of reserves, and yep. that's the other big elephant in the room. That ch- has China depreciated enough? Uh, probably not. <laughs> and and that, that will represent yeah. something that's quite scary to the ringgit as yeah. well. Well, th- I'd like to contrast the situation with um, the more developed economies. Um, Australia, for example, or Canada or the U.K., uh, Australia has the rough equivalent of reserves of one month of imports. Wow, that's not a lot. Extremely low. Yeah. Canada, same. It's we roughly have, around we have one eight month. months, right? We have something like eight months. Yeah. Uh, so they get away without a lot of reserves at all. Um, and what they do is basically they allow the, uh, the currency to completely float. As, uh, I mean, if, if you look at it from another point of view, it's basically they've outsourced the whole reserve management issue to the banking system. Um, and as long as the banking system itself doesn't have an asset liability mismatch in terms of foreign currency, then it's not a problem. Uh, so that could be one way forward where um, uh, Banagara looks at the banking system as the first line of defense rather than trying to do everything on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And China? Uh, do, you, do you think that it's less vulnerable to speculative attacks because it's got more than $3 trillion U.S. dollars? No, it's not. Yeah. I, I, I think there was a recent paper last year which says that um, no matter how much reserves you accumulate, it's never going to be enough. Um, if you're hit by these types of capital outflows where there's a consensus view that your, your currency is overvalued, you will see outflows and you will not have enough reserves to cover. I want to ask, you know, in the past, we, you, I, don't, I remember the days when Singapore, the Singapore dollar and the yeah. ringgit were the same level. It was one yeah. for one. And then years later, we learned that a lot was spent 
uh, as it were, bolstering the ringgit against the U.S. Uh, the Sing dollar. I mean, is that a kind of strategy that makes sense these days? I mean, do you want to kind of like spend money to protect uh, your, the and, value of the currency? Yeah, and also more importantly, is the well, you have explained that it's not, but. The question is whether the ringgit's uh, weakening over the decades is a result of bad policy, right? No, it's not. I mean, it goes back to essentially because we are a commodity player. I mean, that's the bottom line. And there's no, I think there's a prestige value. I mean, was there, what, what animated uh, the government uh, decades ago to kind of, uh, you know, protect the ringgit? Uh, because that was the historical precedent. That's what everybody else was doing. We were used to fixed exchange rate. Nobody, everybody was afraid of floating. And I think the the, uh, the intellectual discourse and the intellectual support for floating exchange rates has basically strengthened over the last few decades. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid of it anymore. Well, that's it for uh, the uh, Ringgit and Sense show today. Sorry, sorry, the S&M show. Sorry, we've just been talking about ringgits, so it made me think about ringgits. And thank you so much to our guest, Noisham Hussein, head of the Economics and Capital Markets Department at the EPF. Uh, I'm Sharad Kutin, because that was Julian Ng. And you've been listening to The Morning Run on BFM 89.9. Wacana intellectual dalam bahasa Melayu masih hambar dalam kalangan masyarakat. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.